Well, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us today to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 10b, second half of verse 10, uh, to verse 22. 10 to verse 22. And uh, in this passage, Peter continues to instruct us and warn us about false teachers. He continues this uh, theme, is very prominent in this letter. And uh, we will be looking at it this morning. Let's hear God's word together. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, uh, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved Yain from wrongdoing but who was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are our refuge and protector. We confess also that what the song says is true of us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord Jesus, we need you. Preserve us, Lord. Protect us from temptation, from error, from cowardly responses to the opposition that we experience in the world. Help us in every way to bring glory and honor to you. Protect us, Lord, from error. Protect us, Lord, from falling away and rejecting you. Preserve us that we might make it it safely to the other side. Lord Jesus, uh, we also acknowledge our sinfulness, our failure, to honor you through a comprehensive obedience to your will. We confess, Lord, our pride, our lust, impurities of every kind, our selfishness, our failure to be considerate towards others, our irritability. Uh, We ask you, Lord, to pardon us, to cleanse us, and increasingly renew us so that we reflect your holy character. Uh, We pray, Lord, that that you would be pleased to bless the proclamation of the word this morning and use it to accomplish your good purposes in our midst. Amen. There's a very famous hymn by Martin Luther, the reformer, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, 
And in stanza three, he writes, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. But that image is a striking one, the world with devils filled, threatening to ruin us spiritually. Uh, that well captures the spiritual dangers that encircle believers. We're beset on all sides by snares and temptations, temptations to rebel against God and sin. Uh, so we're p- potentially tempted to be seduced by error. We're opposed by those who hate God and his people in the world and perhaps tempted to capitulate, but there are spiritual snares on every side. And one of these dangers, uh, Peter warns us about, is false teachers. One of the snares of the devil to trip up believers is those who propagate false teaching, teaching that undermines the truth of the gospel. And so the appropriate response recognizing that all of these temptations do in fact exist, appropriate response of the believer is to be watchful and wary. So what Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's every reason to watch when we understand that this world is full of temptations and as Peter shows us, false teachers. We need to see past their schemes and devices and uh, recognize them for what they really are, what they truly are. And uh, Peter helps us do that. He identifies four characteristics of false teachers that we'll look at to enable us to see past the, the masquerade of ra- righteousness. First characteristic is false teachers speak boldly but ignorantly. False teachers speak boldly but ignorantly. Number two, they love pleasure and profit. They love pleasure and profit. Number three, they make empty promises. They make empty promises. Number four, they are in great spiritual danger. They are in great spiritual danger, and so are those who follow them. So false teachers speak boldly but ignorantly. We see that in verse 10. Bold and willful, or we might say uh, reckless and arrogant, rash and arrogant, They do not fear, they do not tremble as they blaspheme or slander celestial beings, angels, who are here referred to as glorious ones. Peter doesn't tell us exactly in what way they're slandering these angelic beings. He seems to be less interested in the specific details of their error and more interested in their posture, their attitude. It's one of contempt. dismissive of angelic beings, presumably fallen, wicked angelic beings. They're dismissive, contemptuous. They exhibit a certain rashness, confidence, boldness. They do what even unfallen angels dare not do. Verse 11, they do these things. They slander angels. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. You know the expression, fools rush in where angels fear to tread? That that very much captures the situation here. They don't fear to do what even exalted angels are reluctant to do, namely speak contemptuously, slanderously about even fallen angels. Peter compares them to unthinking animals. They speak boldly with self-assurance and confidence about things they have no idea They don't have a clue what they're talking about, but they're confident. They're like irrational animals. 
unthinking, unreasoning. They don't understand what they're saying. And the second point of comparison with the animals is that just as certain animals are brought into this world to be caught, killed, eaten, destroyed, so also these false teachers stand under the judgment of God, and it's only a matter of time until that judgment comes. It's an interesting description, an instructive description that he gives us here. They are simultaneously very confident, and they don't know what they're talking about. It's a good lesson for us, because, and all of us are susceptible to this, all of us are susceptible to thinking that because someone's very confident, self-assured in the way that they speak, therefore they know what they're talking about. They come across as having a very big personality, very forceful personality, and we think, man, this guy really, this guy knows what's going on. This person who's speaking, you know, their verbal fireworks, their wit, their force of personality over us, and we're, we're inclined to agree with them simply because of their confidence. Peter is warning us, though, that it's, you know, the world is full of people, tricksters, who are very bold, very self-assured in what they claim, but, but they're clueless at the same time. Keep that in mind when you watch the, the YouTube videos, very showy, prominent speakers, uh, don't just look at the verbal fireworks, their force of personality. Above all, consider, what are they saying? Is it warranted? What is the truth? Not is this person outwardly impressive, but is what they say true or false? That's ultimately the standard we want to apply. And we should bear in mind that sometimes the servants of the Lord who are faithful in witnessing to you and to the world about the truth are actually outwardly unimpressive. Think here of the Apostle Paul. Says as much in comparing himself to false teachers that he didn't have their theatrics, their verbal fireworks, their perhaps strength of personality. You need to recognize that those who are telling you the truth can sometimes be outwardly unimpressive. Institutions that are bearing witness to the truth can sometimes be outwardly unimpressive. Don't judge by appearances, by the self-assurance and confidence of the speaker, but by whether or not what they say is true and in alignment with scripture. It's a wonderful illustration of what Peter is uh, implying here in a book I read a few years ago called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens by Larry Taunton. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, if you uh, don't know, is a very prominent atheist, spent a lot of time debating people, uh, advocating atheism, um, was English, very articulate, and it had a real force of personality. And Larry Taunton was the Christian who knew, Larry, uh, who knew Christopher Hitchens, would arrange some of these debates, and even debated him at one point. And in his book, as he reflects on his relationship, relationship with Christopher Hitchens, Taunton observes, Christopher's public debates occurred largely in America. One cannot overestimate the effect of his English accent on an audience, something Christopher understood and, as he told me, exaggerated from time to time. I was very aware of this when I debated Christopher. Whether his arguments would be better or not was open to question, but they might sound better, more authoritative. It was, along with his wit, the most formidable weapon in his arsenal, the accent, the white suits, the bearing of a man born to rule all, had their effect on people who didn't know any better. I first became aware of this uh, when I read, rather than watched, one of Christopher's debates stripping his pre presentation of its style and reducing him to words on paper, I soon discovered that he was frequently demolished in debate, but people were too enraptured 
by the delivery to notice. That's a common failing, one that you may not think you're susceptible to, but we all are. You have an impressive individual who knows how to speak, you're oh, probably right, because they have the self-assurance and confidence. Peter's saying that's how false teachers are. They talk like that, but they don't have a clue. See, past appearances, is this true or not? Don't let their false confidence fool you. Number two, false teachers love pleasure and money. False teachers love pleasure and money. Look at verse 13. They count it pleasure to, to revel in the daytime. Their idea of a good time is to party, not even just at night, but in the daytime. They don't care who sees them, right? They're brazen to it. What some do under the cover of darkness, they're happy to do during the daytime. They're happy to pursue their sexual immorality, their filthy living, the gratification of their appetites, uh, even in the day. They are blots and blemishes. They are a polluting presence in the life of the church, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Sobering, isn't it, that they're present in the church? That they're driven by their appetites, but they're not immediately recognizable. It takes some time to identify these polluting presences in the church. They have eyes full of adultery. They're on the lookout for adulteresses. They're on the lookout for the gratification of their sexual appetite. And if the destruction of marriages is the price that needs to be paid, so much the worse for those marriages. They are greedy, hungry for sin, and they entice unsteady souls, new believers, people who aren't well grounded in the faith. These are false teachers, driven by their appetites, and particularly their desire for sexual gratification and fulfillment by their lusts. If you reflect on that, this is, this is very sobering. It should unsettle us a little bit. Peter is saying that there are people in our midst, or can be in our midst, who live to gratify their appetites and will seek to entice people in the, ch in the church into their immoral lifestyle. The, our response is, should be to be wary. Look, on the one hand, we want the church to be a place where there's trust and goodwill, where we give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, on the other hand, we understand that this is a fallen world, there, that there are deceivers, and so we need to be on our guard. Be, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, Jesus says. I mean, you consider how easy it is for someone to tumble into an adulterous relationship even when they don't mean to. How much more on our guard should we be when there are people who actively seek to entice others? We should be wary of this danger. We should take precautions, set up boundaries, recognize that the danger exists, and not be naive. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with Jesus Christ, you are not at a point spiritually where you're beyond this. You're just as susceptible as anybody else to adultery and sexual immorality. It's important for you to be aware of that fact and take precautions. For example, don't be a shoulder to cry on for someone of the opposite sex. Someone of the opposite sex is going through some hard things. Don't be their comforter. Send them to another man or, or whatever their sex is or a woman. Uh, don't be that person. Or at least do it with, the, with your spouse. Do it as a couple. Do it as a team. 
Guard yourself. Don't expose yourself to too much intimacy with someone of the opposite sex. And by the way, if this is true in the church, it's certainly the case that it's true out there in the, in the workplace. Be careful. You spend a lot of time with people of the opposite sex. You work very closely with people of the opposite sex. Be on your guard. It's a temptation. Be wary. Put boundaries. I don't know what those boundaries look like for you in your specific place, but understand that the temptation is real, that you are susceptible to it, like everybody else, and put some boundaries in place. Also notice, you know, thought is the father of action. If you find that your mind and heart are already drifting towards lurid fantasies, it's a small step towards the actual deed. Look at your heart. Are you drifting? Be wary of this temptation. Put uh, boundaries in place to make sure that you're being wise in how you relate to individuals of the opposite sex. Be careful. False teachers are driven by their appetites, uh, by their impurity. They're also driven by their greed. Look what Peter says. They have hearts trained in greed. That word trained comes from the world of athletics. You know, you go to the gym to train, to build muscles, to prepare for something. And they are well-trained in the art of greed. They have practiced, they have worked hard, they have cultivated a real knack for being greedy and taking money from other people. That's what false teachers want. They want pleasure, and they want money. And those are not, of course, unrelated. They're like Balaam, Old Testament false teacher, who was willing to disregard the will of the Lord for some profit. So foolish was he that he had to be rebuked by his donkey, who was empowered supernaturally to correct the foolish prophet. He didn't have even the wisdom of a donkey. Right? That's how far gone he was. That's how blinded he was by his greed. False teachers want to take what's in your wallet and put it in theirs. That's a good thing to look for. One way or another, are they trying to get money from me? Good question to ask. Now, it's intriguing that in a letter devoted to exposing false teachers, Peter spends quite a bit of time speaking about their immoral conduct. We might have expected him to spend more time just itemizing all the errors that they uh, propagate, and he does that. But he spends also a lot of time looking at their immoral lifestyle. What we need to recognize is that errors in our thinking, serious errors in our thinking, bring about immoral and unholy living. So for example, if you do what these false teachers did and deny the reality of a final judgment on sin, well, you can see how that denial of the truth opens the door to living the way that you want to, gratifying your appetites, because after all, God's not going to judge any of this. Do what you want. So wrong thinking leads to an immoral lifestyle. But equally, we should note, an immoral lifestyle makes you susceptible to error and all kinds of bad ideas. So one of the, one of the reasons I say to people, if, if you're caught up in some sort of sin and moral mess, that is not a time for you to be rethinking anything, your theology. You're not in a position to judge anything. I uh, came across, um, just recently, I came across the experience of a, 20th, a prominent 20th century theologian uh, who was apparently, I didn't know this, caught up in an adulterous relationship with a woman for years. And uh, he writes to her, He writes to this woman, 
let's see what he tells her. Uh, in his correspondence with this woman, he says to her, a strange consequence of our experience will be that my seminar this summer about recent the recent history of theology will turn out to be much more lenient, merciful, cautious than, than would have otherwise been the case. Here's what's interesting about that. He's saying that his adulterous relationship with this woman is going to shape his attitude as he teaches this class, presumably the content, his whole posture as he teaches is going to be conditioned by his adulterous relationship. This is what we tend to do. We tend to rationalize our desires. He's involved in an unclean way of living, and so he's going to start distorting subtly the truth. Immoral living leads us to error. Error leads us to immoral living. And the tight connection between these two things should cause us to always look not simply at what a person says, as we've seen, but also at how they live. Jesus tells us that we will know false teachers by their fruit. So the first test we apply to, to teachers is, is what they're saying in accordance with Scripture? And the second text, test is, what does their life say? How do they pray? How do they treat other people? Is there a demonstration of love and concern for other people? Are they selfish? Is there significant hypocrisy where they're saying one thing and doing another? One important test Scripture teaches us to apply is, what about their life? Is it true? And what are their fruits? How are they treating their spouse, their kids, the people around them? How do they actually live? One of the crucial questions to ask. Third characteristic of false teachers. They make empty promises. Look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. Imagine you're walking in the desert, thirsty, parched, yearning for water, and then you see a spring. And you go over to that spring, dry. Or you live in Phoenix, and you look at the clouds in July, and you think, oh, rain's coming, and then no, false promise of rain. That's what false teachers are like. They make big promises. Your life will be enhanced if you follow me, my teaching, my example. But they are waterless springs for whom judgment is reserved. Verse 19, they promise freedom. They themselves are slaves to corruption. Big talk. Follow us. Do what we do. Listen to our teaching. And if you do, you're going to experience a level of of freedom and liberation as a, as a human being that you can't imagine. Shed the constraints of traditional biblical morality. Follow your appetites and your life will be enhanced. Then you'll know what it means to be human. Then you'll know what it means to be free. Here there's a clear point of contact, isn't there, with our contemporary culture. Contemporary society views biblical sexual morality as repressive, stifling, keeping you from being fully human. The idea that there is sexual fulfillment only in the context of marriage between one man and one woman is viewed not as good and life-giving, but as a constraint that causes us to chafe. And if we want to be truly free, truly human, follow your appetites, not the teaching of Scripture. This is what Satan does again and again. He causes us to look at the commands of God and go, oh, they're hard. Chafe under them. And we look out at the world of rebellion around us and go, ah, there's freedom. That's his strategy. That's what Satan seeks to use to captivate us and bring us into rebellion against God. But what we need to do in those moments is understand that this is a lie. 
sexual revolution that began in the 60s and continues to march on, and it's, it's parade even to this day, uh, hides the fact that physical intimacy apart from meaningful relation, relational intimacy is often an empty and lonely experience. There's shame and pain involved. Equally, it obscures the fact that there is real joy in keeping your covenant, being faithful to the wife of your youth, whom you treasure and you've been faithful to all of these years. The intimacy of marriage, the delights of marriage, they obscure those facts. Marriage is, you know, the ball and chain is the metaphor that's uh, regrettably used of marriage. But you don't, you don't have to be like a shrewd observer of the human condition to see that the man who goes home at night to a wife who loves him, a house full of kids, that man is blessed by the Lord. And the guy who goes to some cheap, dimly lit bar night after night looking for women has wandered from the path of life. Like you, you don't even have to be a Christian to see that one is conspicuously better freer, more human and life-giving and joy-giving than the other. I'm going to underscore this point, especially to those of you who are younger, teenagers, you know, those of you in your 20s. You're going to have these moments where the paths that your parents have taught you will seem that, that there are constraints, that they're keeping you from really experiencing life. And you'll look out at the world and it will seem colorful and freeing, and you'll pine for what they're doing. Understand that at that moment, when you think that way, you're under a spell. You, you aren't seeing things clearly. You are bewitched. Remind yourself that there is perfect freedom in total submission to the will of Jesus Christ. To be truly human and truly free is to submit at every point to our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, verse 45. The psalmist writes, I will walk at liberty and freedom, for I seek thy precepts. If you want to be free, cheerful, wholehearted obedience to Jesus Christ is the path of freedom and joy and life. And don't let anyone deceive you and tell you otherwise. True freedom comes in submission, not in rebellion against King Jesus. Indeed, the false teachers we see promise freedom, but in fact, they are themselves slaves of corruption. Make big promises that are ultimately empty, like those clouds that promise rain and deliver nothing. Final thing then to note about false teachers is that they are in great spiritual danger, and so are those who follow them. Look at verse 20. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. They've experienced some connection to Jesus through which they've experienced some moral renewal. And then they have rejected Jesus. At some point they professed faith, presumably were baptized, experienced some blessing, but then they apostatized, rejected Jesus, wandered from the faith. And this is what's sobering about the statement. Their last state is actually worse than the condition they were in when they were unbelievers. In other words, it's worse to profess faith in Jesus, see something of the light and truth of Christianity, and then repudiate that 
repudiate Jesus and go your own way. That last state is worse than being a simple unbeliever. The reason is you've seen more of the light, so you've increased your judgment, you know better. But secondly, your hard-hearted resistance to Christ has intensified as a result of your rejection of him. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So here's Jesus is talking about some sort of spiritual liberation from demonic powers. That's something that falls short from full commitment to Jesus. And ultimately more demons show up and the last state is worse. Something analogous is uh, being described here. Those who have come to see something of the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to profess faith in him, to experience some of the blessings that he provides, and then to reject him, is to put themselves in a worse condition than even that of an unbeliever. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Peter ends with a proverb. He says, you know what they're like? They're like that dog that you've cleaned up that just goes back to its old ways, goes back to the vomit. By the way, they, they didn't think of animals the way that we do. It's first century Jew. He wouldn't have thought as, of a dog as a man's best friend. They're wild dogs, filthy dogs, uh, akin to pigs, right? That's the kind of dog he has in view. You can wash that dog all you like. He's going to go back to his filth. That's his nature. You can wash that pig all you want. It's going to go back to that mud that it left. That is its nature. That's what they do. That's what false teachers are like. So understand their spiritual danger and understand the danger that you are in in following either their lifestyle or their teaching. A person who's repudiated Christ it's, I want to qualify it perhaps slightly, nearly impossible to turn back once you've known the Lord and you've rejected him. Hebrews 6 seems to suggest as much as well. Consider the danger that these false teachers are leading you into. Now, a theological question arises much like it did last week. Peter uses strong language here. These are people who had a knowledge of Jesus Christ, overcame the corruption of the world to a degree, uh, turned from the holy commandment. What do we do with this? Is Peter saying that these people were genuine believers who experienced salvation and then turned away from the faith and lost their salvation? Or is he describing something else? Well, I would refer to last week's message to complement some of what I say today. The first thing I would say, response to that, is the scriptures teach clearly that those who are genuinely converted will be preserved by Jesus Christ and brought safely home. We can give several examples here. Let me give you one from uh, Romans 8.30. All those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, you get one, you get the others. That's the idea. Uh, these are links in a chain and they go together. You get justification, which comes by faith, that like conversion. Then you also get glorification. You have one, you have the others, right? If you're genuinely justified, you will also be glorified. That's the first thing to note. 
So we have to interpret this passage in a way that harmonizes with the rest of Scripture. Second thing to note, I made this point last week as well, is that the New Testament actually gives us not two categories of people, but three in the New New Testament. Uh, First, believer, unbeliever, and then third category, unbeliever, who nevertheless professes faith in Jesus Christ, is outwardly connected to the church, and experiences some real benefit from Jesus Christ that falls short of full salvation. And I referenced Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do uh, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are people that Jesus never knew, had not been converted, and yet they're experiencing some level of spiritual power through him that's real. And it's because of this third category, people who are outwardly connected to the church for a season seem to be believers and experience real blessing from Jesus that falls short of salvation. This is one of the reasons New Testament writers can take language that would apply to genuine believers and stretch it and use it of these people because they appear to be in. And at some level, they've experienced real blessings. In the case of these false teachers, the blessing of having some kind of moral renewal. Perhaps you've known people like this. Like, Jesus is a way for them to clean up their life. You see a level of improvement. They, they sober up, maybe if they've used drugs for a period of time, and then they abandon the faith. They've never been converted, but they nevertheless have seen something of Christ in his power. And I would put the false teachers described here in this third category. And as evidence and justification for doing that, uh, consider the proverb that I just mentioned. Peter, Peter isn't simply saying in verse 22 in the proverb that the dog is washed and it goes back to its dirt. It's true. But that's not all he's saying. He's saying something more fundamental. The dog will always revert back to its old ways as a dog. The pig will always revert back to its ways as a pig. You can clean it up for a little while, and there's an, a, some superficial change and some superficial wa- uh, you know, washing that takes place. But ultimately, a dog's a dog, a pig's a pig, a false teacher's a false teacher, and time will expose their true colors. They will be seen for what they really are. And so the proverb itself suggests that these are not genuine believers. They've experienced some blessing from Christ, but it falls short of salvation. I think the thought here is actually very close to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they had been genuine, they would have persevered. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, that, that they are dogs or pigs, to put it in terms of Peter's analogy. Their departure from the church and their profession of Jesus Christ demonstrates that they were never really in, is John's point. And I believe Peter is making a similar point. So the crucial thing for us to recognize here is that this is where false teaching takes you. It puts you in a place that is worse than even when you were a simple unbeliever. You harden yourself and it brings down God's judgment on you. And so we need to take this warning seriously and avoid complacency. Now, you might, you might say, I could, I could hear the objection. Okay, you've just said that Jesus preserves everybody who trusts in him. All genuine believers will be preserved to the end. So why worry about the warnings of Scripture? Right? It's a good question. Um, he, here's what's important to recognize. 
Jesus preserves us, but it's not an automatic preservation. It's not like putting a quarter in the vending machine and out pops the can. It just happens automatically. No, Jesus uses a variety of means to preserve his people in their faith. Discipline, the correction of brothers and sisters, the preaching of the word, and yes, warning passages of scripture, these are all means by which Jesus keeps us from apostasy and making shipwreck of our faith and making it safely to the other side. Part of the way Jesus keeps you is he says, consider what would happen to you if you reject me as your Lord and Savior. You have come to taste something of the goodness of the Savior, something of life. To reject me is to lose everything. There's only destruction and ruin and misery outside of me. Where will you go? If you leave me, where will you go? When you're tempted to move from Jesus, either at the level of doctrine or in terms of your moral conduct, understand what's at stake. You're moving away from salvation, from eternal life. And so the warnings of Scripture are extremely important. We dare not ever be complacent about our, our walk with Jesus Christ, but we need to wake up and understand the, the dangers that surround us. We need to take the warnings of Scripture seriously, uh, that we, if we don't persevere, if we don't continue to the end, we will perish I think it's also sobering in this, in this light to note that apostasy doesn't just happen at, at an intellectual level where you reject the truth and you start espousing error. That's true. You can deny Christ doctrinally, but what's, what's sobering about these false teachers is that they're denying him through the way they're living. You can deny the faith while still saying you're a Christian. You can affirm all the right things and call yourself a Christian and deny the faith by saying, you know what, I'm going to call myself a Christian, but I don't care about actually obeying any of, the, any of this stuff. I'm going to live the way that I want to. I'm going to live a life that's driven by my appetites, and I'll enjoy that. And then I'll, I'll be a Christian too. I'll just say I'm a Christian. But you've apostatized. You might still call, call yourself a Christian, but you no longer, you've rejected the faith, and you've rejected it by embracing in an unrepentant way an immoral and deviant lifestyle. Let that be a warning to us. When There's a moment of weakness where we say, where you start to chafe at the moral constraints of Scripture. They begin to feel burdensome. And you look out there in the world and you say, oh man, what sweet relief there would be if I could plunge with the rest of these sinners into, the, <laughs> into their in the rebellion against God. How sweet that would be, how liberating it would be. Understand that in taking that step and embracing sin, you are rejecting the Lord. You are wandering from the faith and bringing down the same judgment that Peter describes for the false teachers. So let's be wary let us wake up. Let us not slumber, understanding that the world is full of dangers to our souls. It's those who fight the good fight and persevere to the end, those who conquer that are given the crown of righteousness. That's a call to be sober, to be vigilant, and to fight and not give way to moral complacency. We need to persevere to the end. And even as we emphasize strongly and need to emphasize strongly our duty in persevering, uh, we need to also recognize that it's not simply us striving and persevering. Um, you, know, you know the passage in Luke where Jesus says to Peter, uh, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. It's a moment of weakness for Peter. Peter denies the master. But it, Jesus says to him, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Because the high priest interceded for Peter, his faith didn't fail. And here's the amazing thing. That high priest continues to intercede on our behalf with God the Father in heaven. 
Here's what the letter to the Hebrews writes. Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. It's not that Jesus died, rose again, and then forgot about us when he went to heaven. Even in glory, he continues to carry each one of us on his heart and to intercede with the Father that we all might be brought safely home. So let us fight the good fight, persevere, while resting in our high priest who will bring us safely to the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there is a tendency in our walk with you to become complacent and to drift. We pray, Lord, that your word would rouse us, that we would see dangers all around. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the battle we are engaged in, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to remain faithful to you to the end. Grant us not to slumber, but to be wide awake in this life. Uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would apply the wisdom of your word to the uh, diverse circumstances of life, Lord. We pray that we would be able to see through false teaching and false teachers as we contend for the truth uh, for our good and your glory. Lord, we ask that you would bless the word that was proclaimed today and cause much good fruit uh, to be produced in our lives. Amen.